Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we have Matt Duss, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor. And so today, we're going to talk about a wide range of issues dealing with what is a progressive foreign policy. Also, we're going to be talking about Middle East policy, um, whole shebang. So, um, Matt, just want to welcome you to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah. So before we get into, you know, all these pressing topics, I just want to do a mental health check. In January, we literally had an attempted insurrection. Mm-hmm. And I'm still reeling over that. I think a lot of folks are still reeling over that. And you, you've been in D.C. when all this stuff was going down. So I'm just checking in on you. So, so how are you feeling? Well, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I'm feeling okay. I mean, I wasn't in the Capitol when it happened. I was working at home, um, as a lot of us have been, um, although I've been in, in the office quite a bit more uh, over the past few weeks. Um, but, you know, I did have, you know, obviously my, my boss was was here as members of Congress are and a lot of my close friends and colleagues and hearing their stories about how they sought shelter and, and hit out. Um, you know, I've been checking in on them uh, to make sure, you know, cause they were right there in it. Um, you know, checking on how they're doing, but I, I would just say, you know, yeah, I, I I'm with you. I'm still kind of dealing with it. You know, it's, it's weeks ago now, but it's still those images. And I remember watching when it was starting to happen and seeing those initial videos of people like busting through windows to come into the Capitol, you know, the place, the place where I work, I've worked for the past four years. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no other way to, you know, it's 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 an obvious point, I and mean, it's a, it's a a, a pivotal moment. I, I still I still feel like so many of us haven't fully processed what it means. Yeah, and for both of us who do this work, you're focusing more on the Middle East. I do more Eastern Europe and Russia, and you know, one of the things that really gets to me is there is a way in which foreign policy from Washington in particular is explained in the way of it's very much top down. Yeah. And we are constantly lecturing folks on how to maintain their own democracies. <laughs> and the irony of all of it is that we make it incredibly difficult for people to vote, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, like partic- right. particularly in, in Republican led state legislatures across this country, it's just re- it's just really difficult for people to vote. And we saw what went on and what's going on in Georgia, where their state legislature is tightening up restrictions on people's access to the ballot box. And we have um, folks who feel like if they don't like the government that was duly elected, we can just simply overturn it. And just imagine the type of media coverage that would have taken place had this happened in i don't know uh nigeria or you know iran for example Mm -hmm. or beijing just the othering of folks and as a one of the things that really stand out to me as a as a black person or any person of you know person of color in this field is that i feel other than my own country (laughs) as it is and I sympathize with folks abroad who point out American hypocrisy. And so that's what gets at me. Yeah. No, I hear that. And I think, you know, kind of what you're getting at, I mean, you you work on Eastern Europe. I've, I've worked on the Middle East a lot. But, you know, in the wake of that insurrection, you one of the comments you heard was like, oh, it was like it was like a third world country. You know, it's like stuff we see out there. And it's like, you don't need to point to anywhere else to look for examples of this, all right? You know, right-wing mobs launching violent attacks is not something that we missed in the United States history, okay? This is, this is fully American, all right? And I think it, kind of what you're saying, I think what that guy is like, there is this kind of, you know, and I'm not the first to observe this, others have pointed out too, there's just kind of like this sense of american innocence you know it's like oh we've lost our innocence how many times can one country lose its innocence man you know it's like (laughs) you just you know this sense of like oh man you know it's just this sense of like oh even though we make our mistakes 
their honest mistakes and we're always trying to do well. And I think there's, there's an element of truth. Yeah, I think there's an element of the American system that kind of facilitates doing better. But the bottom line is we have a violent history. And as you said, as a non-white person, I mean, we have a history of disempowering and oppressing and we see it right now. I mean, the, you know, the Republican Party even now is becoming much more explicit about their goal of just making harder for people to vote. And I think we all know what that's about. I mean, this is a, a, a small minority um, that is because of the kind of archaic and anachronistic <laughs> political mm -hmm. system we have is, you know, um, you know, disproportionately empowered, um, you know, completely out of completely out of any connection to their actual numbers in the population. And they want to keep it that way. Um, and so that's that's the challenge. I think uh, when, you, when you discuss the elements of our democracy in our country that um, that are working to improve things, that totally comes from our civil society. That comes from, quite frankly, a, a Black Lives Matter movement in particular. And when you think about what's going on in Georgia, uh, I feel like progress is pushed from the marginalized, from the edges of society. Very much so, right? I think that takes place in any place around the world. And I am very much um, committed to that line of thinking. And I'm in good spirits about where we are because I know that we have a movement uh, in this country that is so robust that it cannot be ignored. And I just wish that our many many of our elected officials will recognize that power as opposed to fighting it and what i mean specifically is you know you think about the people who try to over overthrow this country to me that's extremism right um that's that's very much extremism the way that we would stereotype muslims right <laughs> you know it, it that, that that's extremism and it's just really irritating how some of our elected officials respond to Black Lives Matter activists who are calling for things like defund, right? And you may, and we can have a conversation about that language means, but when defund is it's about reallocation of resources, you have people who are literally saying, I just want, I am actually participating in a process by which I am going to advocate through all legal means, through through policy changes, through advocating to our elected officials that are duly elected to reallocate money on how my taxpayer dollars are being spent. That is not a radical idea. That is a policy position. And I'm just really just thrown off how, at how people respond to you know, these activists and I, and it, and it manifests itself in the foreign policy space because America comes from this position of, of privilege. But anyway, when you talk about like the mental health check, just given everything that's happened with my, you know, <laughs> colleagues at, at Atlantic council and everything, I, I just feel like much of this foreign policy framework and that we're dealing with is wrapped in white supremacy. And we need to do a better job of untangling all of it, you know, so that, that may have been a bunched up thing, but that's no, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, listen, our America still is dealing with the, you know, it, with the legacy of white supremacy. It is it's it's the operating system for so long of American society. Um, and that's going to be reflected in, in as much as it's reflected in our domestic politics and our, you know, policies of you know prison policy criminal justice it's reflected in our foreign policy because americans are the ones who create american foreign policy um so it's absolutely right that you're going to see that reflected in the way we talk about and make foreign policy and that's part of what i think progressives are trying to change i mean these things are are very much connected um our militarism abroad and our inequality at home is mutually reinforcing and we need to change both of those things I'm really interested in your work with Senator Sanders with his foreign policy. So many of us are 
used to him talking about economic inequality and he has a, a, a very broad and robust intellectual framework around that. Many of us are not as familiar with uh, Senator Sanders' foreign policy outlook. So I really am interested in what your role has been with his office just broadly. Then, of course, we can get into more specific questions. But for you, what what's the what's the intellectual framework behind Bernie Sanders' foreign policy? Yeah, well, I think if you look, you know, you and again, just as I said about you know connecting domestic policy and foreign policy, I think you know Senator Sanders kind of demonstrates that you know as well as not better than pretty much anyone. Which is you know you look at the policy, look at the principles that that kind of inspire and undergird his approach to domestic policy, whether it's Medicare for all, uh, whether it's um, you know ending college debt. Um, it's this idea that, listen, we are all in this together. I mean, we need to do everything we can to create a society where everyone can live in dignity and security, where people don't have to work like endless hours to make barely enough to live, to never see their kids. We have the resources, we have the capacity to enable a better life for all our people. Um, and I think that extends into foreign policy, just that basic concept of, you know, listen, we have, you know, you know, the goal of U.S. foreign policy, as any country foreign policy, is, you know, the security and the prosperity of the American people. But as progressives, you know, he believes as a progressive, and I believe that we have obligations and responsibilities to be in solidarity with people around the world. Um, and first of all, to, to do everything we can to make sure that we are not contributing to their suffering, not contributing to their oppression. Um, which we are and have done in so many places around the world and are doing today. Um, but to also use the considerable tools and influence that we have to kind of bring people together to come up with new ideas and innovations to build um, a world in which more and more and more people can live in the security and dignity that we want for ourselves and our community. Mm -hmm. So one of the conversations that we don't talk about is imperialism. I think the most important question that American foreign policy experts like yourself, like myself, need to pose with each other is how devoted are we to imperialism? How imp Because that that is connected to the capitalism, um, much of which that Bernie Sanders interrogates. You see Elizabeth Warren in her own way wrestling with this issue herself. It's because... Really, when you think about the way that our military industrial complex, just even that phrasing, many of us are not even willing to confront that language, military industrial yeah. complex, and how much that informs how we view policy, because that complex, um, which is very much policy by the gun, is how we look at things, right? Yeah. And so I think that we are too devoted to uh, being an imperial country. And if we digress from that, I don't think most people realize or un can understand where America's position is. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I think, you know, Senator Sanders has never shied away from using that term military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And he brings mm -hmm. it up a lot, um, you know, because when President Eisenhower, you know, spoke those words, I mean, I don't think Eisenhower could even have imagined how prophetic they would turn out to be, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's like, I mean, the, the only reason people tend to shy away from that word is because it's like, it's just, it's like, we're just completely marinated in it, right? Our priorities, the way we talk about these issues, like the priorities of, and the kind of presumptions of this military industrial complex, defense contractors, et cetera, um, you know, other corporate interests are so deeply baked into <laughs> the entire discourse. Um, but it is really important to acknowledge that it, it, it wasn't always this way and it doesn't have to be this way. But um, I think, you know, and, you know, moving on from that, it's also a question of like, who, you know, who and how do people influence policy and what tools do they use? And obviously we come very quickly to the issue of money in politics. Um, not just contributing to members of Congress, but also just like contributing to think tanks as we are, you know, discuss, as you mentioned about your, your colleagues at the Atlantic Council. I've in my own, you know, before I came to the Senate, I worked at a think tank, the Center for American Progress, um, that, you know, accepts money from a, a number of different organizations, corporations, funders, donors. I mean, this is a huge issue. Um, who, who are the people paying 
uh, analysts and, and policy, you know, policy professionals and thinkers to kind of raise these issues and what impact does it have on the discourse and sort of like limiting the range of options that are even discussed for politicians to choose from. I, I just, so let's, let's go back to the, the point of military industrial complex. I think intellectually, well, I'll just ask you, do you think that many of Senator Sanders colleagues think about it intellectually like this? Because I think the way, you know, the reason why we live in the world that we live in is because this is all planned out, right? Urban planning. You think about all the things that happen, the way that we live and exist, someone thought about it. I, I really believe, you know, as somebody who interviews folks for a living, you know, ele elected officials for a living, I think most people one, a lot of folks don't win or or become elected to office on their foreign policy. I think that's very much that that's that's rarely the case. That's the first thing. Secondly, it's something that folks learn when they get into office and they don't learn it like you, for example. We're gonna talk about your own background, but you know, how many of these folks actually lived abroad? How many of them speak another language? Right. And and I think that's really important. I think we take for granted that when we deal with foreign dignitaries, they're speaking to us in English because we expect them to, okay? We, we, we expect them to. And so how many of us in the Senate can have a conversation with somebody? I don't, you don't have to be a native speaker, but just have be able to sit down at a table and have a general conversation about something where you can understand that person's point of view without using English, right? Speaking as a congressional staffer, I do think there are a lot of staffers who give this some very serious thought. Um, I think there are members of Congress who give this some very serious thought. I think the challenge comes in like, what are the opportunities to actually move new and innovative laws? What what are the you know what initiatives can you mount to really challenge the status quo? Um, and I think putting you know more thinking into finding those opportunities is what we really need to do. And again, I think this is where we need to connect. You know what we're thinking about as kind of policy professionals is, you know, with the movements that are out there, right? And I would use as an example, the work that Senator Sanders did around the Yemen war powers resolution, right? Focused on the issue of Yemen, you know, as, as you know, a humanitarian catastrophe, it's one that uh, a catastrophe the United States has made much worse by supporting the Saudi-led invasion. Um, you know, Yemen has had issues for a very long time, uh, a lot of which are connected to US policy in the region, some of which are unconnected. But you know, whatever the U.S. is deeply implicated in this, there was also the issue of you know what you know the United States, as Senator Sanders believed, and a majority of co colleagues voted with him, that U.S. engagement in this war was unauthorized and therefore illegal. Um, but I would say, just as importantly, if not more importantly, there was a whole movement and coalition of activists, Yemeni activists, Arab American activists, just foreign policy activists who had been engaged on this issue and could mobilize to get Congress to move this, this resolution. And I think that's the model we've seen on a range of foreign policy issues, whether it's getting out of the Iraq war or supporting diplomacy with Iran. And I think that's, that's really, really key here is kind of this growing movement of grassroots organizations that are focusing in a much more regular way on pushing on foreign policy, you know? Yeah, so I want to get into the Saudi-led intervention in, you know, in, in, in the Yemeni uh, uh, civil war, and you know more about this. So I would like to ask you to break it down. So basically, um, I, I'm more concerned with, with you, you know, just giving us a primer on it. I really am interested in why is it that America has this, what I consider, you know, this very dangerous and irresponsible relationship with with the Saudi government. You know, given their atrocities, it's like we know that it's it's a very selective relationship. Had had Iran been guilty of the things that Saudi Arabia would be accused of, we, it would be a very different conversation. But I just really want to ask you about that. You know, the, the intervention uh, for a lot of us who don't know about it, and what um, and just tell us about how Senator Sanders had has responded. Yeah, I mean, just to give a, a quick gloss on, I mean, this was an intervention that began. I think it was March of 2015. You've had, yeah, you've had, you know, you had a, basically uh, an uprising in Yemen that began as part of the whole range of Arab awakening uprisings, right? There was definitely one in Yemen as well um, against uh, Yemeni President Saleh, who was, you know, like a number of leaders, you know, an authoritarian, autocratic leader um, of this country. 
um, and there were mass uprisings and um, he was eventually, eventually driven out, but then you had a, you know, a, a series of conflicts, basically a civil war. You had um, a movement called the Houthis, um, which is a series of tribes that had always been kind of at odds with the central government that took over the capital in response to Saudi, because it's right on the Saudi southern border. I mean, let's recognize, I mean, there is a legit security concern on the part of the Saudis about this. Um, but they invaded a coalition, the Saudis, the Emiratis, some others, with the support of, of the United States. Um, you know, and since that time, what was, you know, promised to be, you know, a weeks, maybe months long intervention turned into just this years long grinding conflict, you know, you know, near near famine, you know, uh, the cholera epidemic, just absolutely. The UN called it the world's biggest humanitarian catastrophe a few years ago. So, you know, anyway, this was, you know, when I joined Senator Sanders' staff in, in early 2017, and we were just talking through a range of issues. I mean, this is something we started talking about a lot because I think not only was it a, is it, was it a really tragic situation, it was one in, that the U.S. was essentially helping support. Um, it's something that U.S. taxpayers, the United States government, we are culpable for, um, and we needed to stop. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, we needed to stop doing that. But why do you um, think it took so long? Because you know that. So, so why do you think it took so long for us to finally stop? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. You have all these kind of you know justifications for well, we're going to support the Saudis because if we weren't engaged with the Saudis, it would be even worse. Which I don't think carries a lot of weight. But that's one of those kinds of arguments that people think sounds reasonable in Washington. Um, you have, you know, there, and again, there, as I said, there are legitimate concerns about what the Houthis were doing. They were, you know, were and are occasionally launching missiles into Saudi Arabia. Um, we can argue about whether that's a response to the Saudi intervention. I think it certainly is, at least in part. Um, By the way, uh, Matt, before you go in for, I just want to make sure for folks who don't know. So basically, um, the Biden administration temporarily froze arms sales to. Saudi Arabia, United uh, Arab Emirates. And so um, it's a temporary freeze. And that's according to uh, Forbes right now. I just want to let people add into that. Yeah, you know, they froze the arms sales, but I think even, you know, even more significantly, they announced a few weeks ago that they were ending support fully for the Saudi intervention. Again, this is what the resolution that Sanders passed called for the U.S. to do. Trump vetoed that. Um, but the Biden administration, as they promised they would do, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Biden, when he was, you know, when we passed this resolution before the campaign, he supported this. He was one of the public supporters, as were a number of, of former Obama administration officials who are now Biden administration officials were supportive of it. So I think this is something that had a lot of support. And, you know, we give them enormous credit following through on this very quickly, um, ending their support for this war. Now, I think the question is, and they also named a, um, a special envoy, a U.S. special envoy, Tim Lender King, to kind of take the lead in bringing the war to, you know, finding a political agreement to end the conflict and help facilitate um, humanitarian aid and construction, which is something we also believe, having played such a huge part in Yemen's destruction, we need to play a major part in its reconstruction and repair. Mm -hmm. What the, you know, so going back, so I think this deals again with my earlier conversation about imperialism and how I think that's the number one question. So obviously, we, if we broke it, we fix it. I, I, I definitely get that. But um, I'm also, my, my question also is how, when we're dealing with Saudi Arabia, how much should, you know, how much further should we go in distancing ourselves from that government? I mean, it's the arms sales, it's, you know, the war and everything, but like, how far do you think, you know, you know, Sanders talking about going in regards to restructuring our relationships with, with, yeah. with Riyadh? Well, I think we've got to first step back and understand what the, you know, the kind of, kind of purpose of the relationship was when it was created, right? And we're talking about, you know, Franklin Denon Roosevelt meeting with the Saudi King 1945, end of World War II, and established this relationship. And, you know, it's an oversimplification of, say, it was about security for oil. But basically, the United States understood that Saudi Arabia was sitting on an enormous amount of oil. Um, 
there was everyone was understanding that oil was an enormously valuable commodity and was only going to become more valuable as you know Europe and the rest of the world rebuilt itself after World War II, and that the country you know countries that kind of could control the flow of oil or have considerable influence over that were going to be in a good spot. Um, now I think that equation has changed a lot, right? I mean. Not only does the United States produce a lot of its own oil, or, or get a much smaller percentage of our oil from the Saudi from Saudi Arabia than we did in the past, um, you know, we want to be moving away from fossil fuels. Um, ultimately, um, I think uh, on the other hand, the fact of the matter is, a lot of countries still, you know, the world still depends on oil to a great extent. So even if the United States is not, you know, even if the United States were to to shift away from oil, you know oil is still gonna be a strategic, you know, influencing the flow of oil is still going to be extremely valuable in terms of power in the world. Um, so that's, I, the, I, I say that to say that I don't think it's smart simply to just cut off the relationship with Saudi Arabia. I don't think anyone is claiming that. I think, I think we want, you know, we want to have good relations with countries. I think partners and allies are a good thing to have. But the question is what purposes are those partnerships and alliances serving? Um, what values and interests are being advanced by those partnerships? And I, and I think we can say that there is a lot of bad things that have been advanced by the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and that's what we would want to change. Yeah, yeah, def definitely. I, I, think, I think the confusion for a lot of us, beyond the fact that many of us are not um, keen on Middle East politics in general, is that the, I think the first assumption that many of us have and this is a really basic one is a lot of folks assume that everyone in the Middle East are Arabs, right? And I think a lot of people commonly confuse uh, that with Iran, you know, who are Persians. And, you know, and so I, to, but I, I think that's a very important distinction because, you know, when, when, when you have people, when these conversations are had um, in media, uh, a, a lot of the comments, a lot of the reporters, are not area studies folks, you know what I'm saying? Who can really break these things down. And I think that people fundamentally don't really recognize, you know, the conversation, like what's a Houthi and what is, you know, this tribe and what it's that tribe. And I think it goes over people's head. And so we don't really understand Saudi because, you know, if you think about it, a lot of folks, um, are deployed, you know, through the U S military are deployed there. Uh, you have a lot of folks, you know, again, primarily through military. And so there's a way we, there, the relationship that we have with this country, um, so much is tethered to the people that we know, and we don't get the full scope, uh, you know, of, 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 uh, of how harmful their relations are to their neighbors. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes some sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, dealing with a kind of lack of knowledge on the part of some journalists, not all, I mean, I want not to, not, not all, yeah, yeah, there's some. But, but I'd also add, like, it, while it is obviously important to understand that you're, there's a number of different ethnic groups in the region, obviously a lot of Arab, Iran, Persian, um, and, you know, different sub-communities within those categories, whether we're talking about different, you know, tribal groups, et cetera, whether we're talking about Sunnis and Shias, um, I think it's also important to note that these details are important to understand, but also kind of at a basic level, we're talking about modern geopolitical conflicts, right? Um, and I think so the basic principles of, um, you know, contest for political power apply, um, regardless of these details. You know, I think, I, I think one of the things that really bugs me uh, <laughs> in Washington is when you hear stuff like, oh, Sunnis and Shias have been fighting for hundreds of years. I mean, that's just kind of bullshit, man. I mean, listen, I mean, we're talking about a regional conflict by modern political states. Um, you know, it's what part of what we've got going on right now in the Middle East is, you know, you have a Saudi sphere of influence, you have a Iranian sphere of influence. You don't need to kind of dig into the history of, you know, the Prophet Muhammad and his successors to understand that, you know, these are modern countries fighting over power. Pretty much, yeah. So I want so I want to get into Iran, right? With with, with the uh, deal. So for those who don't recognize it as uh, the Iran deal, 
uh, was struck in 2015. And ultimately the goal, it was a, uh, a first step, first of all, which was to, um, you know, prevent the Iranians from enriching enough uranium to create a bomb, right? A nuclear bomb. And so the Iranians have been honoring it up until the, uh, up until the Trump administration, they withdrew. Can you just tell me how devastating, or I want to use the word devastating, how much more difficult is it now to re-enter the deal now? And, you know, just what kind of damage did America's withdrawal uh, from this deal create in relationship with Tehran? Well, with Iran, I think it did considerable damage, right? Because you had, I mean, let's remember there was this negotiation between the U.S. and Iran in various forms or attempts at negotiation going back a very long time, going back to, you know, George W. Bush. I mean, um, but finally, um, President Obama, who was elected, you know, as a candidate, he promised, he said, I'm going to try diplomacy with Iran. I'm going to talk to them. We shouldn't be afraid to talk to anyone. And he was right. He got criticized in Washington, but he stuck he stuck to it. And it's good he did because he was right. Um, and they struggled for, you know, a few years. And it wasn't until there was a new Iranian president elected in the summer of 2013, Hassan Rouhani, who was, you know, seen as more of a, a moderate or a pragmatist or whatever term you want to use, um, who was more amenable to negotiation. Then things happened fairly quickly. You had you know, Secretary of State Kerry and the Iranian foreign ministers of Zarif were talking much more regularly after years of very, very little contact. Um, but still, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of much more, you know, conservative hardline voices, including the Iranian Supreme Leader, who were very, very skeptical of the United States, um, who believe that ultimately the United States just wants to destroy the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, and there's obviously a lot of history and enmity back there and, and bad moves but from both sides going back a long ways between the U.S. and Iran. Um, but you had this kind of um, faction led by Rouhani and Zarif who were like, well, let's let's try this negotiation and see what we can do. And fortunately, you had an administration here led by Barack Obama that was interested in this, this as well. So working with, you know, the P5 plus one, which is the the P5, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council, plus one, plus Germany, um, got this, this deal to, to limit Iran's uh, nuclear program, to dismantle certain parts of it that could be used for a weapon. Uh, in exchange, Iran would receive um, sanctions relief from these sanctions that had been put on them to kind of get them to stop uh, their nuclear program. I mean, I think, and I, and I, I think a vast majority of non-proliferation experts and security experts agrees it was a pretty good deal um you know you it no no deal gets you everything you want but in terms of kind of like putting a lid on iran's nuclear program and removing the potential threat of an iranian nuclear weapon this was this was a good deal you know unfortunately there is a lot of folks in washington who are you know there's an extremely you know active and well-funded uh anti-iran uh industry here in washington um why i don't understand it so i i know i know i i don't get it because look if we if we understand here's the thing um the deal was roughly what 160 pages right when you look through the whole thing it's, it's like 160 pages right so because I, I remember reading it so so basically first it's a very technical deal in nature and the whole goal was to prevent them from enriching enough uranium to create a bomb Right. And so Obama's I feel like his framework, Obama's framework, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that if we ultimately have to get into a battle with Iran, we'd rather have a conventional war than a nuclear one. Well, I think it was I think it was more that he was like, listen, people keep saying that an Iran nuclear weapon would be very dangerous. And he agreed. And he said, if that's the case, then you have two ways to deal with it. Either you're going to try to bomb Iran's nuclear program out of existence, which is very difficult, and oh, by the way, is going to launch a, a wider war that would make the Iraq war look like just like, you know, the opening act, you know? Do you remember uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad yeah. back, you know, so you talking about somebody that was out there, boy, um, but yeah. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad <laughs> said something, and it'll always stick with me. He said that if America dares to attack Iran, we will make Iraq look like paradise. 
So that's basically it. You know, <laughs> you know, I'll never forget him saying that. Right. Yeah. No, but see, that's just it. Like American military planners and strategists and experts agree with that. Right. I mean, an, an Iranian, you know, a, a, a U.S. Iran war would not be in Iran. It would be all over the region. It would get very bad very quickly. And no one can explain how it would end. Um, but you know, do you think another thing? And I'm sorry to get back. I just want to add another point. I think another misconception that people have about Iran is that, and here's the thing: like I just hate even talking in these terms. But people presume automatically that the war be solely conventional, and that's not the case. I mean, like you know, like people think. Obviously, if you think about it from a conventional standpoint, yes, America has a superior military, but it wouldn't be just that, right? I mean, I think people are just stuck on this Rumsfeld approach of shock and awe, and it, it, you know, just a, a very simplistic approach, and it, it, it would never be that way with Iran. I, I just think people severely, you know, underestimate their capability to defend themselves. I think that's exactly right. And I mean, let's understand why that is, right? You had the Iranian Revolution, um, 1979, and very shortly after that, you had Iran invaded by Saddam Hussein in neighboring Iraq with the backing of you know, the United States, all these other countries in the region, um, all these other Arab states that basically just were supportive in various ways. Of, and that was a hugely destructive war. Like over a million people killed, just the use of poison gas, you know, the deaths of, of, of civilians. And Iran remembers that like, what did the world do? Basically the world kind of sat back and let Saddam Hussein do that to them. Now that's not to say Iran is totally innocent. Iran carried out, you know, its own atrocities during that war, as as happens during war. But like, Iran's lesson from that was that, you know, we need to find ways to create strategic depth around the region. Right? We need to be able to defend ourselves far away from our own borders. And I think that's what kind of what you're getting at. So this, you know, they feel surrounded. I mean, you got Kuwait on this one side, you got Iraq here, you got Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Right, you don't have to approve of it, but you have to try to understand Iran's own strategic defense concept, right? And that's- But why don't we understand that though, man? I think that's the number one, I think that's the main thing. Like we don't take time to understand their position. The fun, so the thing is my fundamental belief, regardless of how much I disagree, you know, I can find, we can find many issues with Tehran. They have a fundamental right to feel threatened. I think that's I, I think that's that's right. I mean, they have legit security concerns. I mean, that's that's how I would put it. I mean, for the reasons I just laid out, that's not to you know we don't need to like grant all of their claims to just make that basic understanding. Like, okay, he, Iran has reasons to feel insecure. Uh, in, you know, in addition to what I just said, let's also remember that between two thousand one and two thousand three the most powerful country in the world invaded and occupied the country to their immediate west and immediate east, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so yeah, they, they have some concerns. You know, If Iran had invaded and occupied Canada and Mexico, I think the United States would probably have some concerns about what Iran's ultimate plans for the United States might be. Um, so just, but I think your question is why, I mean, just politically, it's you know, it's 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 difficult to raise these ideas because it's always more politically profitable to talk about how X country's evil and you know, you know, we need to defend ourselves. That's just that's unfortunately, you know, a, a really <laughs> it's a really easy political argument to make. It's it's somewhat more difficult to say, okay, hold on, let's try and understand what our adversary is thinking, what their concerns might be. Because, you know, politicians don't like to open themselves up to, you know, to accusations of being soft on this or that country. But that's just a challenge we have to take on, an argument we have to make if we, if we want a saner, less militaristic, less destructive foreign policy. This is something that I've always figured that I've tried to work through uh, when I cover nuclear weapons, when I cover, uh, is that I think another issue is there are a lot of folks in Congress who are uncomfortable with existing with Iran, you know, having anything, right? You know, I just feel like there's a, I feel like the, 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 the way in which we view Iran, many of us view Iran is, is that 
no matter how much they, I feel like no matter how much they do, it'll never be enough. Um, and that's what worries me about Iran. And fortunately, there is a Democratic majority right now. And so like there is some gateway to work on it. But I'm, I'm just really concerned that, you know, there are enough people in, con there are a number of people in Congress where the goalposts, that's the word I want to use, the goal po the goalposts keep moving, you know, with them. Right. And it, it it's just one of those things where, and maybe this is just me kind of talking and fairly venting. It's, it's just, I'm happy that folks like you are there to kind of lead in these policy talks with Sanders. It's just that I feel like there are some people who just won't admit that they that their goalposts will continue to change when folks like you come up with a solution of how to best address the relationship. I, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, yeah. I, I just have to say No, that. no, no. Listen, no, <laughs> no, don't apologize because I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think that, frankly, yeah, I think there are folks, let's just say there are folks who oppose the deal. I think there are folks who, you know, have legit criticisms of the deal. That's fine. No deal is perfect. But I also think a lot of this criticism of Barack Obama's Iran nuclear deal is just because people don't want to sign deals with Iran, right? They just don't see Iran as a country that we should be signing agreements with. They see Iran as a country that we should be trying to overthrow. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a very dangerous proposition as we should have learned many times over, over the past 20 years, if not longer, you know? Um, and I think that's that's part of the challenge here. So, you know, granted, yeah, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of things that Iran does, you know, to its own people and in the region that, that we should oppose and push back on and, and find ways to, to kind of to stop. Um, but, yeah, the bottom line is there, there there is kind of a faction in Washington that's just unremittingly hostile to Iran, unremittingly hostile to the idea of diplomacy with Iran. And one of the challenges of dealing with it is you know, among other things, it's like Americans themselves don't often hear from Iranians, right? Um, Iranians are always represented and spoken for by others, often by others who, who aren't very friendly uh, to Iran or Iranians. Um, that's, that's, a, that's just part of the challenge. You, you know, so I, I want to get to China, particularly with... Um... You know the the uh, the conversation around genocide. You know with uh, the uh, the Muslim Uyghurs in, in in China, and by the way, a lot of people, you know, um, in the previous administration, uh, there was uh, the determination that they were committing that that the uh, Chinese were committing genocide. You know, uh, against these folks, and recently the United States. Uh, has said that, and this is according to Yahoo, that uh, they haven't seen any developments that would change this determination that yeah. um, China committed genocide um, and crimes against humanity against this treatment of, right. of Uyghur Muslims in the Western region. You know, and that's according to uh, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. And I'm going to read a quote from him. He said that we have seen nothing that would change our assessment. Uh, the Biden administration has endorsed the last minute determination by the Trump administration that China has committed acts of genocide. And um, and Xinjiang and and Beijing denies those charges. And for our folks um, who don't know, uh, China doesn't. There are a lot of things going on. China, for one, they don't have um, a designation for refugees, for example, right? They don't recognize that term. Um, but then, but then also, I'm curious as to what is Sanders' position on how to handle that? Because this is an issue of human rights, which is coupled up with a wide range of issues that, yeah. you, that, that Washington and Beijing has. No, I mean, Senator Sanders' position is that we need to work with other countries through the UN, through whatever multilateral ways we can to put pressure on China to stop doing that. I mean, Senator Sanders' own family. I mean, he's, his father emigrated from Poland before World War II, his, own, his father's family was largely wiped out during the Holocaust. So these issues are, are very real for him. Um, and the question is, what tools do we have to put pressure on China to stop this? 
Um, I think he recognizes, we, we both recognize that, you know, one of the legacies of World War II and the Holocaust is that, you know, we have a responsibility to do what we can to stop these kinds of things. Um, but having recognized that, the question then becomes, okay, what can we do? What other countries can we work with? What kind of international consensus can we mobilize uh, to put pressure on China to stop this behavior? And, you know, it, it, it's, it's not easy for a whole range of reasons, uh, not least of which is China has built up its own influence across the globe in a whole range of ways that make it difficult to kind of help other countries align against them. But that's something I think we, we, we have to try to do. You know, having said that, recognizing that there are other issues, you know, like climate, um, that we also need to find solutions with China as much as possible. But I think we can do both of these things at the same time as we have done in other instances. You know, we put pressure on the Soviet Union on human rights while still negotiating important nuclear weapons limitation treaties with the Soviet Union. Uh, we can do this. Right. So I just want to go down. So when we talk about uh, genocide, to talk about exactly what's happening there for our listeners. I want to go through some of the activities that are going on there. So this is according to the New York Times. One of the things that's happening in the Xinjiang region is that a lot of these folks, the Uyghurs, are put in re-education camps. Another thing is that they're going through incredible, you know, they're going through facial recognition checks. And also uh, a large number of the children have been placed in boarding schools that's designed to assimilate and indoctrinate them. There have been uh, widespread destruction of mosques and shrines and turning them into, in, into tourist sites. And so uh, they are accused, of, local officials have been accused of pretty much interring these, this, minor, this ethnic minority into camps. And so culturally and linguistically, the Uyghurs are uh, considered more associated with Central Asians and to the Central Asian region. So just giving people some background on that. And so has the conversation of sanctions been considered? Yeah, no, I think it's being considered right now. The question is, um, what kind of sanctions on who, um, how many? Um, I think one of, you know, the, the possible ways to go about this is, you know, what's known as kind of Magnitsky uh, sanctions, which you remember as, you know, as a kind of Russia uh, expert uh, named after uh, a, a, you know a Russian hum, human rights lawyer. It's a way of it's a, a tile of, of sanctions on uh, specific officials who are implicated in human rights abuses. Uh, so rather than sanctions that kind of that impact civilians broadly, um, you know economic sanctions like the things that we have on on Iran and Venezuela, for example, that we you know that actually you know increase the suffering of everyone. Um, the efficacy of those kind of sanctions, I, I strongly question. Uh, these are sanctions that focus on the assets and the ability to travel um, and other things of specific regime officials. Um, and I think there's some evidence that that's probably a better and more effective way to go about something like this. I want to get into your personal background and how you got interested in foreign policy because I think it's a very particular thing for us. Um, you know. Uh, it's, uh, I'm really interested in your trajectory because I read a, a piece on you that was written by the nation and it talked, you know, it talks about you a bit and, you know, and I thought it was really interesting. You got your bachelor's degree at 31, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. right. Yeah. You know, at 31 and you know, you're six, five, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> and it, it, you know, it, it had a kind of colorful uh, description of you and. I, you know, and you're from New York State. Um, I, I really am fascinated at when did you first realize that foreign policy is something that you would want to do as a career? Yeah, um, you know, I'd always kind of been interested in foreign policy for a range of reasons, but I think the moment when I realized I wanted to be serious about it was probably shortly after 9-11. You know, I had, I had had the opportunity to travel to Turkey and kind of experience Istanbul the first time I traveled to a Muslim country. And that really got me interested in Turkey and the region and Islam and, you know, the history of Islam. So I had already been reading a bit about that. But then 9-11 happened and, you know, the United States just started to get more engaged in the Middle East and, 
ways that were, were, were not, in my view, productive. Um, and obviously lots of claims being made about Muslims and Islam and the region. Um, and that really just kind of changed my thinking. And I said, I want to be involved here in helping to come up with, you know, I want to know more about this, this region, first of all. Um, but I also want to help think through what about what are some better approaches. Um, and I originally came to it from, so I did my bachelor's, uh, finished my bachelor's. I, I dropped out of college for a little while, but I went back to the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, then got my master's in Middle East studies at the University of Washington, and then came to DC, um, intending to work in journalism, which I did for a while, but then slowly, you know, made the shift over into policy work. Um, How did you do that? I mean, it's interesting because I'm in journalism and I feel like, you know, I enjoy um being at the atlantic council and participating in those policy talks i'm just curious why didn't you stay in journalism well i still really enjoy i mean there was you know the opportunity i still really enjoyed doing journalism like reporting journalism going to the region um talking to folks writing those stories but at the same time being able to translate what i was learning by being there into kind of policy recommendations you know because i think that's I, I see that in some ways as a natural fit. Now you got to be careful, right? Because, you know, journalism, you want to serve the story. You want to just lay the facts out and help people understand. But, you know, I saw it for myself, at least, as a natural kind of shift to say, well, I've had these experiences. I'm, I'm in touch with these folks who are telling me what's going on over there. I have opportunities to go there. Here's how I think American policy can do better. Um, so it was just kind of a, a slow progression, but eventually, you know, even right until before I joined Bernie's staff, I mean, I spent a couple of years as head of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And even when I was head of that organization, I was still publishing occasional journalism pieces just because I really enjoyed doing it. And I, and I think it's really valuable. Um, but, you know, so I've been with, with Bernie for the past, you know, just over four years. Yeah. What has been the most fulfilling experience of working with Senator Sanders on foreign policy? Wow. I mean, there's been a few, uh, more than a few. Um, I think passing the Yemen resolution was a really satisfying project. Um, the first time Congress ever passed a war powers resolution um, since the time it was written, passed in first in 1973. But, um, you know, it, when I think about it, one, I would say if I got to choose one moment, it was, you know, Bernie, as I mentioned, his, his dad was an immigrant. My dad was an immigrant as well. My dad was born in a refugee camp. He came here when he was a little kid. Um, and we met with a group of dreamers. This is a few years ago um, when they were pushing, you know, uh, you know, these, these are, you know, children of immigrants, as you know, who are under threat of being deported. Um, and, Democrats were pushing for, you know, the Dream Act to, to make clear, like these, they're not going to be deported. They are Americans. They're going to stay here. And we were meeting with a lot of these groups, and just being part of a meeting with them. When Bernie made clear to them that we were not going to let them <laughs> be taken away, you know, to be part of that, with my own family's background, with his family's background, in a room with with these kids just to be able to kind of let them know that Bernie was on their side, that that was a great moment just to be part of that. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, your family is from Ukraine, right? Yeah, my dad's family. Were they Jews? They're not, no. They were uh, Christians. No, because a lot. the reason I asked that, a lot of them are. Like so many people, particularly in New York, um, yeah, they're from, they're, they're Jewish, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, do you, have you ever been to Ukraine? I have only once. I went, actually got to go with my dad and my, and my, my wife and kids and my dad came with me. We went um, to Kiev and Cherkasy. Um, it was a very short trip. Um, first time I went to Kiev, it's amazing. I can't wait to go back. Um, what year did you go? This is like March, 2015. Um, okay. But then we gotcha. went, the reason yes. we went to Cherkasy is that, you know, when my dad's parents fled, or his grandparents and parents, you know, fled Ukraine, their family was split up and there was parts of the family that was, that couldn't leave. So he has an aunt uh, that lives in Cherkasy. So we went, went to see her. So I got cousins who, who live there as well. So we went to see them. I'm curious about when you started learning Arabic and what has that journey been like? Because I still take Russian right now. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, God is hard. Um, yeah. But you know, but like, tell me how your journey of 
learning Arabic began and what's it like thinking in another, another language and how does that inform how you you know, construct policy? Yeah, I mean, I took uh, Arabic while I was doing my master's um, and I'll be honest, unfortunately, I haven't kept it up as well as I, as I should have, just haven't had the opportunities to speak it all that much. But like when you're studying the region and studying the language, that is really, really something, you know, just, you know, the grammar of it, you know, at least I found that the Arabic grammar was, it's just beautiful and elegant and in and, and so many ways this whole language is constructed, um, you know, and, and, and struggling through reading texts from the region, you know, which I could do at that point, it, I, I probably couldn't do it nearly as, as well now. Um, but I do think if, you, if you're trying to, if you're trying to at least kind of break the surface uh, in studying a region or a country or, or you know like that, I mean, tr trying to you know hearing a language and studying it in a way that you can actually understand, obviously, um, is going to be an enormous asset to that. Um, and on top of the fact that, as you as you were saying quite rightly earlier, I mean, Americans take for granted that others speak English to us. Yeah, um, we need we need, <laughs> we need to put ourselves yeah. in a position where we're the ones who are, you know, who, who are doing that, and that's you know for for obvious reasons. Um, some not so obvious. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's something you see a lot more in other countries where people just know that, you know, they learn two or three languages, um, but Americans don't. Um, and that's something, you know, I'm definitely encouraging my kids to do. Um, I think it's important. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things about foreign policy to me that needs to be improved on is supporting the State Department. Yeah. And I, I had uh, Congresswoman Bass on the show uh, a few weeks ago, and she was talking about the need of funding the State Department and diversifying the State Department. And, you know, this deployment of what is known as soft power. And, you know, I, I, I bring that up because I feel like we severely underestimate or, or underutilize or, uh, or more specifically, we underfund the State Department's capacity to really uh, lead the way uh, in foreign policy in lieu of, uh, of, of leading with military. No, I, I agree. I mean, I mean, and again, this is where I'm encouraged that the, the Biden administration has committed to this and Secretary of State Blinken has committed to this is resourcing and rebuilding State Department, making clear that this is the kind of tool of first resort for foreign policy. And that means bringing in good people, giving them the support that they need um, and, and making you know, making making sure they know that they're valued. And that's not just them, that's also diplomats' families who, you know, as, as you know, they, they deal with a lot. These are families that move around, they 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 endure a lot. Um and I mean by I mean not Biden, but Trump, he ran into the I mean his his he ran his administration ran into the Trump right. ran into the ground. No, for all yeah. kinds of reasons. I mean, <laughs> I mean they had people who left just out of disgust. They had people who were kind of chased out because they weren't ideologically, you know, simpatico with Trump. Um, but yeah, the, so there's an enormous rebuilding project that, that has to happen. But I'll also say over the course of, especially the last 20 years, the war on terror, I mean, it's not just a Trump problem, right? It's the Pentagon has been the one that's received these resources um, because so much of what we're doing is military centric. And so if we really want to rebuild the State Department, we need to change our foreign policy you know, to, to, to focus on diplomacy. So my last question to you would be, if you if there is one foreign policy um, issue that if you could just snap your fingers that you would just change today, what would it be? Man, oh man, this is, I was not prepared for this question. I know, but, uh, I forgot to send it to you. You know, you know yeah. <laughs> no, I would have to say like, you know, reforming, I, I mean, this is going to sound, uh, you know, I think just the issue of war powers of Congress, like retaking its authority over the authorization for the use of force, kind of ending the 2001-2002 AUMS and Congress once again taking up its constitutional responsibility to say when, where, where we can and where we cannot use military force. I mean, this is the rules the Constitution lay out, and we've gotten so far away from that uh, since 9-11, where you have these open-ended authorizations to just send our military wherever under the pretext of fighting terrorism. I mean, that's something that needs to change. And 
unfortunately, I can't snap my fingers, but because it's going to take real work and real commitment on the part of the administration and the Congress. Absolutely. So Matt Doss, uh, foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. I'm really happy that you took time out of your very busy schedule to, to talk to me. It, it was a pleasure. I, thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. It's my privilege. I love your show. I love your work. It's great to be here with you, and I'd love to come back anytime. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please support us by going to Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating. Also, we love giving you great interviews each week, but running and growing a podcast isn't cheap. So please go to Patreon, find us under Black Diplomats, and support us with whatever you can. Thank you again for joining us and talk to you next week.